Good morning. morning. Let's go ahead and begin class of prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for an opportunity to study, to draw together, to share our heart's love for you with with each other. We pray that you will join us here this morning and that you will bless uh, our endeavors to understand, see, and fulfill your purposes more fully. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing lesson number eight in the quarterly Jeremiah, and the title this week is Josiah's Reforms. And uh, just a moment, because we often don't spend a lot of time in the Old Testament, I thought maybe we'd spend a moment just to kind of set a little history of who Josiah was, who Josiah was. Uh, And maybe we'll do a little history of his family. His great-grandfather, you've probably heard of, was Hezekiah. Hezekiah um, was king in Judah from 715 to 686 B.C., He became king at the age of 25 and ruled for 29 years. And during this time, Judah had been weakened at that time and was really dominated much by Assyria. The prophets Amos and Hosea were active during the time of Hezekiah's rule and prophesied of impending disaster to come if reform was not made. Hezekiah initiated reform. He was a good king. He he opened the temple, which had been closed prior to his taking the throne. Brought back the priests, began religious services. He invited the nation to celebrate in a Passover, which had not been celebrated in years, so the festivals had stopped. And uh, the invitation was actually sent to the tribes of Israel as well, the northern kingdom, and they mostly laughed at the invitation of Judah to reinstate the uh, Passover and celebrate. Uh, Interestingly enough, when Hezekiah uh, instituted the Passover again, the first celebration was one month later than the actual prescribed time because the people couldn't get ready in time to do it sooner when he started his reforms. Uh, There are many interesting lessons in that. if you think about the potential implications of the Passover being performed a month later than it was supposed to, in other words, not on the right day, okay? You think about the implications of that, yet it was still honored of God. You mean they couldn't get, like, ritualistically ready? The, the temple couldn't be ready, the people couldn't get their stuff together, they couldn't come together and organize uh, as a nation, as, a, as an agricultural nation by the time uh, he put out the word. Uh, After the Passover, they set about destroying the altars to the false gods. Hezekiah even destroyed the bronze serpent that Moses had made. Do you remember Moses made the bronze serpent? And that was made around 1500 BC, so about 700 years before, 800 years before. This bronze serpent was still there in in Israel, and Hezekiah destroyed it because it had become associated with pagan god, and they were worshiping the bronze serpent. Isaiah was active during Hezekiah's time as well, and as you know, he told Hezekiah of an impending sickness and that he would uh, be dying soon. And um, Hezekiah began praying for a longer life and was granted 15 more years of life. Josiah's grandfather, Hezekiah's son, was Manasseh. Manasseh became king at the age of 12 and reigned over Israel or over Judah longer than any other king in, in their history, he reigned for 55 years. But he did wickedly before the Lord. He reversed the reforms of his father Hezekiah, brought in fertility worship and prostitutes to the temple, sacrificed at least one of his own sons to the pagan gods, and uh, was eventually taken captive by the Assyrians. They put fish hooks in his nose, dragged him away, put him in chains in a dungeon. He repented sincerely with sackcloth and ashes, and the Lord not only forgave him, but had him restored to his kingship and sent back to uh, to Israel where he reigned and began reforms and trying to reverse the course he had been on. However, the nation never fully recovered from what he had done for them. His son Amnon, Josiah's father, was worse than Manasseh and was so wicked, in fact, that he was assassinated by his advisors after two years of, of reigning in office. And thus, Josiah came to the throne at the age of eight. And Josiah reigned from 640 to 609 BC. During his reign, Babylon was increasing in power and was attacking the Assyrian Empire and eroding the Assyrian Empire. And in fact, Babylon destroyed Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria. And significantly thereby decreased Assyria's ability to oversee and govern what was happening in Judah. So there is more and more autonomy happening in Judah. Necho II of Egypt, Pharaoh of Egypt, decided either to attack Syria or support Syria. The commentators and historians say both ways most lean toward the direction of supporting Assyria. And in order to do that, he had to cross through Judah, and Josiah uh, opposed him and 
there was a battle between the forces of Judah and the forces of Egypt, and in that battle, Josiah was wounded and, and died from his wounds in that battle. Uh, jo- was he advised not, not to um, I, I didn't, go off of that? I don't think there was a direct advice one way or the other on that battle. The king said no. The king said, hey, this is not with you. Let me go ahead and pass through. And he said, no. Okay. Yes, the, uh, that's right. The king, uh, the pharaoh of Egypt, tri- uh, counseled with him and advised him, I'm not trying to fight you. I don't want to go to war with you. Let's not go to war. But yes, Josiah insisted on, on opposing him. Josiah was relentless in his goal to exterminate idol worship. So intense was his desire to do this that he opened the tombs of the prophets of the false gods, brought their bones out, had their bones burned on the altars of the false gods, desecrating the false gods' idols, and then destroyed the places of worship after he burned the bones of the prophets on them. Um, At age 26, he launched a project to repair and rebuild the temple. And in that project, the books of the law were discovered in somewhere hidden in the temple. Most believe that these uh, scriptures contained at least some, if not all, of the books of Moses. And... When he heard the, the law being read, he was convicted of the impending disaster coming upon Judah. And so he called for the prophet Huldah, prophetess Huldah and asked if the judgments could be avoided. If there's anything they could do to avoid the, the impending disaster, she said that they could not be avoided, but that they would not occur in his lifetime. He reintensified his efforts to eliminate pagan worship and destroy the, sh- the shrines that Solomon had built to false gods that were still standing from the days of Solomon and were still in use. So he destroyed those shrines. Solomon reigned from 971 to 931, and uh, Josiah's reign was um, 640 to 609. So we're talking 350 years later, these shrines are still standing that Solomon had built. But he destroyed those. His, His death was mourned deeply in Israel, and Jeremiah wrote a lamentation about his death, Lamentations 4.20, and this is what the Lamentations is. The Lord's anointed, our very life breath, was caught in their traps. We thought that under his shadow we would live among the nations. So any thoughts about Josiah as you studied this week? Yes. Maybe not totally Josiah, but comparing to the current things. If someone came through... You're getting half a step ahead of me. Okay? Okay. You're you're right going where I'm going, but I have a question to ask first. So, do you think Josiah did good or evil? Good. Because the Bible says he did good, so we better conclude he did good. So, I think this is where you were going. And if not, then you can come back to that. Then what do you say about his destroying the shrines, the altars, and the elements of pagan worship? What do you say about that? He was making a statement. Was it a good thing to do? I think this is where Wendell was about to go. Then what do we say about the Taliban? Mm-hmm. Who has been doing... Were they, though? I mean, did, if, if Solomon built those shrines, didn't they belong to the king? So he can destroy his own shrines. But it wasn't just his, evidently, because he was destroying them throughout the nation and even went outside the bounds of Israel. He, I mean, Judah, he went into Israel and some of the areas that the Assyrians had um, um, pulled troops back out of to defend against Babylon, and he was destroying their shrines as well. He went up as far as Naphtali. Yeah. Not part of this territory. Yep. And he was destroying shrines everywhere he could go. He was active in doing this. Yes, but he did destroy some that were in his ter- that that were under the um, the royal house as well. Yes, in the back. Laurie's wondering if he did good things in a fearful way. If he did good things in a fearful way. Well, I think this is part of the discussion, isn't it? So the question that I was trying to focus on, what do you say today when you hear in the news about the Taliban who in their territory, when they are now in the area that they govern, destroy artifacts and, and uh, places of worship and shrines and, and um, statues and other things that were related to pagan worship and they destroy them. And we hear about this on the news. Do you think, good for them, good, good job? Or do you think, how horrible? What do you think? Yes. No comments. I noticed a lot of no comments. Go ahead. But don't bad people often employ good techniques, good philosophy, good principles? You, I mean, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, a, a, a bad... Person might be a vegetarian? Or, or somebody like with the mafia. They might, they might employ good, some kinds of good leadership Why techniques. Yeah. They might, no, but I mean, they just might employ good leadership techniques. I think what probably what Josiah did 
was trying to make a statement, say, Let, let's get rid of this. Let's get rid of all of the physical elements, the physical evidence, everything that. And that's a good that's a good technique. That's a good leadership technique. So what about the Taliban doing it today? Well, it makes sense for them. It doesn't mean they're good people. If you're dealing with level one and two uh, moral development and a misunderstanding of the law of worship, it's just a piece of rock. It's only a piece of rock unless your your mentality tells you that it's a god. So <clears throat> there's this term called means restriction, and I know you're familiar with. If you have somebody who's suicidal, you, you don't want guns laying around in the house, so you remove the guns. And I don't think anybody would think that's a bad idea. So removing the opportunity for the Israelites to wander away in such an easy fashion... Again, if someone wants to kill themselves, they may leave the house. They may do something to acquire the means to do it. But you don't want to make it easier. We don't want to make it easier for our children to drink alcohol because we know what harm can come from that. So we remove it from our house. Taliban's kind of an extreme example. What is the difference between what Josiah did and what the Taliban does? And there are significant differences. Yes. If the temple was in working order, okay, or attracting... See, this is what, yes, exactly. If it was an attractant to, to worship of a pagan deity, okay, if the idols were suggestive of practices that were drawing people away, if it made it convenient for them to worship pagans, then that was a different thing. The temples that are currently being destroyed are by no means functional. So that's the difference. Josiah was destroying active centers of worship, which were actively corrupting the minds and injuring the people. The Taliban, on the other hand, are destroying artifacts of history that stand as evidence of past civilizations and even things, even evidences of ways not to do things that could stand as a witness of ways not to go. Yes? So what Turkey has done is put all of the... They are not a Christian nation, but they have kept all of the churches and they are all museums. Right. So as evidence of history, this is the big difference. An active center. So with the gun example for a moment of somebody who's suicidal, we, move a wor- we, we remove a working gun from the home. But if they have a gun that has been spiked that is an artifact, like for instance, you go up to Lookout Mountain, there are cannon from World War II, uh, I mean, excuse me, from Civil War up there, but they've been spiked. You can't use them. Okay? So it's just an artifact at this point. You don't need to remove those. There's not actually a threat. And the other difference is Josiah was destroying state-led and state-sponsored systems of worship. In other words, the government, his father, his grandfather, and so forth, were actively promoting these religions, these false idols, these false systems of worship, and thus as a state organization leading the people by the power of the state into these false systems, then Josiah, as a leader of the state, had a responsibility to show a different way and a different um, witness to his people. Uh, and so there was an aspect of that going on there as well. The Taliban, however, were not leading the people in this false systems of worship of these idols they're destroying. If they actually wanted to be more like Josiah, then what do they need to do? They need to dismantle their own form of government, stop abusing people, and actually sh- sh- start loving people like Christ did, dis- dismantle their false system of, of worship that they are putting onto people. Yes, in the back. So justice is suggesting that Josiah was getting rid of the high places to other gods, but it still didn't affect the hearts of the people. Correct. Well, as a, as a nation, yes. Maybe there were individuals that were being positively impacted. Um, because down the road, we, we do see that when Babylon came, there's Daniel and there's Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and other people of the royal house that were being positively affected, evidently, at some point down the road. So, yes, the nation itself, though, was not turned around by that. First paragraph in, in Sabbath's lesson says, Parents know just how hard it is to see their children, especially when they are older and out of the parents' control, make choices that they know will hurt them. Of course, this heartache doesn't apply only to parents and children who hasn't at some point seen friend or friends or relatives or anyone make choices that you knew would be detrimental to them. This is an unfortunate aspect of what it means to have free will. Free will, especially moral free will, means nothing if I don't have the freedom to make wrong choices. A free being who can choose only the right is not truly free or even truly moral. So, with that in mind, I wanted to have you consider this scenario carefully. Patience and prudence are members of the same church. They grew up in the same community, 
attended the same church schools, and both married Christian men. They are members of the same congregation and both have sons of near the same age. Patience's son is named Rob, and Prudence's son is named Jude. Jude, at an early age, is a good boy. From an early age, is a very good boy. Obedient, on time, dressed nicely, speaks politely, gets good grades in school, helps the teacher, and is noted for his sharp and quick mind. He is elected class president, serves in the debate team, helps with mission trips, works closely with uh, school and church leaders. He is often called upon to read scripture in church and it, as he is well-spoken, bright, and well-liked. Eventually, he graduates college and becomes a member of the General Conference Committee and is involved in forming church policy. Rob, on the other hand, struggles from an early age. He is talkative in school, plays tricks on others, uh, skips classes, doesn't do his homework, and his grades are very poor. He gets in arguments and fights occasionally. His mother prays and prays, talks with him and disciplines him, but it doesn't seem to help. In adolescence, he begins drinking, drops out of school, hangs out with the wrong crowd, and is soon burglarizing homes and stealing as a profession. He is eventually caught and, uh, as a repeat offender, is imprisoned for his crimes. Back at church, patient, patience frequently runs into Prudence, who never fails to mention how wonderful her son is doing, his latest accomplishments, and then, with contrived concern, always asks about Rob's latest troubles and expresses how sad she is that Rob has caused her so much grief. Whose mother would you rather be? Which of these children would you rather is yours? And as Paul Harvey would say, for the rest of the story, Jude is better known as Judas, and Rob is better known not as the robber, but as the thief on the cross, who accepted Jesus as his Savior. Now which would you prefer is your son? Which child really was the successful one? Is that how we see the world around us, typically? Well, it's the same story with the lost son. You know, with the son that stayed home, that did everything right, Versus but the prodigal was not touched by God, whereas the one that left home was. So with this story, what's the point of this story? Never give up. Never give up? What else? What's the, there's many really important points. I'm going to tell you, I see mothers of the second son in my office who have family and friends that they grew up with in, in their community of Christian folk who have kids that haven't seemed to go off the reservation. And they live under this sense of oppression, just like patience was feeling from, from prudence. So one of the lessons, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Big lesson. Just because someone, if you remember, if, if you haven't read in the Desire of Ages the chapter on Judas's life, go back and read the chapter on Judas's life in the Desire of Ages. Prior to the weekend of his betrayal, he was considered by the, the apostles, the rest of the eleven, as the number one apostle amongst them. They looked up to him and looked to him for leadership. He was the best spoken, and, and uh, he, just, he just carried himself with an air of confidence, and he was, did all the good stuff and had all the right checkboxes in his, uh, in his uh, religious credential checkbox. He was the COO. Yeah, he was the chief operating officer, the COO, yeah, the, the money bags. And the other side of that is how many leaders have we seen just in the last few years, just in the last few months, that were held up as exemplary? So man looks in the outward appearance. Sometimes, another lesson is, sometimes those living in open rebellion, let's call it that, like the prodigal, are more open to receiving truth and correction than those who have been raised and indoctrinated into religious dogma and systems and rules. The pharisaical upbringing where we never do anything wrong, we always make sure the TV's off before sunset on Sabbath and blah, 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 blah. Yes? I have to tell a story. Several years ago, one of my sons, we were going to a Christmas celebration at the church, and I watched these young high school kids up front playing their violins, singing special music at the Christmas, and of course, I'm sitting there crying, thinking to myself, how wonderful, I wish my kids were that involved, but I didn't say anything. 
So on the way home, my son said to me, I know why you're upset, Mom. And I said, you do? Why was I upset? Because you wish that was us up there doing that. And I said, how do you know that? Well, I just know. But let me just tell you something. Every one of those kids, every one of them, at school, in the privacy of conversations, you would not believe what they do. They're involved in drugs, they're involved in stealing, they're involved in all this. But you would never know because every Sabbath they're in church and they're up front doing things and participating. That was just this particular time, okay? Mm-hmm. I can honestly say, him saying that opened my eyes to things I had never seen before because I had looked at appearances, performances, and judged accordingly. And that's not the way it was. And that's why I shared this, because I think many people get trapped in this type of perspective. And we really need to, I think, be more gracious. And, and you know, the, and the other take-home point is, the story's not over. The story's not over. That thief on the cross evidently didn't get it right until the last day of his life. The last day of his life, he finally got it right, but that day mattered. And so, it, and, and as long as there's still breath, there's hope. And so we don't want to lose hope. We don't want to give up. And I would even suggest that uh, that doesn't mean we give people free passes either. I think it was the consequences of the thief on the cross getting caught and being put on the cross next to Christ that put him in a position to finally make the right choice. Had he not had accountability for his misdeeds, then he might not have been put in that position to be able to recognize the Savior. He might not even have been there. So... Sunday's lesson, top paragraph, it says, however much we like to talk about objectivity, about viewing things as they really are, as human beings, we are hopelessly subjective. We see the world not so much as the world really is, but as we really are. And because we are fallen and corrupted beings, this corruption is going to impact our perception and interpretation of the world around us. How else, for instance, can we explain someone like King Manasseh of Judah especially those early years of his terrible apostasy, one can hardly imagine how he justified his own, in his own mind the horrific abominations he allowed to flourish in Judah. I thought this was a really, really powerful point to make uh, about each one of us seeing through our own unique lenses or reality or perspectives. And sometimes our perspectives and the way we see things may not actually harmonize with reality. For instance, I'll just show you uh, a, an example of how the lenses we have on can affect how we see the world. Everyone in this room has an English software package. The English language was uploaded after birth. It's not in your DNA to speak English. If you'd been raised in a different country with a different language, even from your same biologic parents adopted out at birth, sent over to France and raised in France, you'd be speaking French. And think about how your primary language, whatever your primary language is, how that got uploaded into your being. It wasn't didactically. It wasn't through scholastics and education. It was simply by assimilating from the environment around you. And in fact, it was impossible for you to avoid assimilating the language. You couldn't have used your intelligence and IQ points being raised in an English home in an English community and say, you know what, I'd really rather learn Russian instead. You couldn't have done it. It wasn't possible. Now, understanding that, here's this English language, it's not biological, it's not pre-programmed, it's not in your DNA. When was the last time you got up in the morning and said, you know, today I think I'm going to think in English? Never. It's running all the time. Every waking hour, even in your dreams, English is running all the time. And everything gets filtered through it. When you look outside and you see an object with a trunk and leaves, you see a tree. You do not see a baum which is a German word for tree. All of your reality gets filtered through this language. It puts a warp on how you see things. Now, do you think English language is the only thing that got uploaded into your software system like that? No, it is not. The whole paradigm system. Exactly. No, every, yes. So our beliefs, our attitudes, male, female, relationships, husband, wife, relationships, child, parent, relationships, right, wrong, beliefs, God, all the things, these are all assimilated from the environment. How we treat peoples of different color and different culture, all these things we assimilate into a belief system that we filter reality. So think about it. You're out and you see a deer. Do you see a cute little animal that brings a smile or do you see dinner? 
Because different cultures see that deer completely different. Same object, but you see two different things. What a cute little dinner. Hmm. Right? Yeah. How do you see the world around you? How do you process that world? How do you ever get through that? So what I'm going to say, so we're going to do a little processing today. Because Josiah didn't assimilate all that. So what factors make our subjective view of the world more distorted and further from objective reality? And then we'll talk about some things to make it more. Any major trauma in life. Any major trauma in life. The earlier the trauma, the more impactful the warp. And the longer the trauma remains unresolved, the more impactful the warp. The children who are traumatized because of the age... Again, how do children learn language? They can't help the language. When I was growing up, I grew up in Northeast, and I assimilated my language like everyone else does. And when I married Christy, I said a word one day, and she goes, that's not a word. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. And I was so sure it was. Why was I so sure? Because it had, it had been assimilated before I was aware as the Bible says, my left hand for my right hand. I'd already assimilated my speaking. And no one had ever confronted it before. So I went to the dictionary and I pulled the dictionary out because I knew I was right. And guess what? It wasn't a word. Now, what word was I using frequently that wasn't a word? Alls. Alls you got to do. You ever heard people say this? Okay. Yes. And, and, so, and so after I was... Con- and how did that get in there? How, here I am. I'm, I'm, I'm a physician. I'm a board-certified psychiatrist. How am I using a word that isn't even a word? And I had no... And I was, I'm telling you this because I was blind to it. I had no awareness. I had... If I was left on my own, I would have never identified that as a problem in my lexicon. It was there before I grew awareness and self-reflection. I had needed someone else to reflect back to me, and then I resisted it. I defended against it, argued against it, had to go to another authoritative source, and then after I was convinced, this wasn't a word, okay, well, I want to be educated in my speaking, I'm going to stop using that word. So I made the decision, right there, I'm not going to use that anymore. Do you think it was the last time I said that word? <laughs> it was not. I, I was caught saying it several times. And then, but after, after I put my mind, it took about, took about two to three months of focused work to stop using that word in the way I speak. And I don't use it anymore. But there's, there's a lesson in that, isn't there? You may identify something that is a certain way of thinking about things. Oh, you, you know what? And your initial, your initial reaction might be, no, that's not right. You might argue against it. But then there's evidence that comes. The evidence is overwhelming, so you accept the evidence. You go, I'm not going to think that way anymore. And the next hour, the next day, you're, you're thinking the same way again. Yes. But often we have to replace it with something else, or otherwise it will remain That's right. the focus of our attention. Yes. So often when we're trying to get rid of something, if, if that's all we're thinking about, then it becomes even larger rather than smaller. So things that affect the... Yes, go ahead, Russell. Does, does uh, the psycho-emotional trauma function a lot like physical trauma, where you can have one macro trauma, like a car accident, or you can have a series of micro traumas, yes. and it becomes yes. cumulative? Yes. Okay. Yes. And so well, I have many patients who come to see me and they come and, and as I see them they are absolute decompensated state of depression, not able to focus, organize, do anything. They're just near the point of them wanting to die. And I say, you know, what's going on? And they talk about a death of a loved one. Well, that can be quite traumatizing, quite 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 painful. And I said, well my mama died. When did your mama die? 17 years ago. Does anybody besides me go, wait? And then we take the history, and then, and then my uncle died. What was that, 16 years ago? And then my dog died 10 years ago. And then, and then I lost my job uh, 11 years ago. And, and, and so what you find is accumulated stuff is there are some people who have impaired wound healing. It's not that they have problems. It's wrong to feel pain or feel um, hurt or injury when a trauma or a painful event happens. That's quite proper. But somewhere in the process, they never heal those wounds. They just accumulate over time. Yeah, that happens, absolutely. And so we have to deal with wound healing. Resentment and grudge holding. People who cannot forgive warp the way they see the world around them. Because they end up, dis- they end up 
apprehensive. They end up distrusting. They end up projecting threats on people who are not threats. They will, I had someone in my office recently asking me, you know, my first husband cheated on me. I'm about to get married again. I've been dating this person for years. How can I trust this new person? Have you forgiven your husband? No, I'm never going to forgive him. If you don't forgive him, then you keep a resentment in your heart that keeps you angry and bitter and then makes you fearful of getting hurt again and you become very self-referenced and self-protective and you warp the world around you looking for threats that could hurt you. You're not basing your trust on this person you're about to marry on his trustworthiness anymore. You're basing it on the warp that you see, the potential threat because of your past experience. So unforgiveness... Unwillingness to forgive. Violating God's law. In other words, you've done sin against somebody, you've done wrong, and you refuse to repent. You won't repent. You won't, you won't allow a change of heart to come. So you deny and you distort. See, when you do wrong, you will feel guilt. You'll get a conviction. Guilt is, a, is an unpleasant emotion. People don't like guilt. They want guilt to go away. You can either make a legitimate, appropriate guilt when you've done something wrong go away by repentance and restoration as God's design. Or you can avoid feeling guilt by denial and distortion. It wasn't me. It was the woman you gave me. If you didn't put her in the garden, I would have never taken that fruit. It's not my fault. I'm a good guy still. Denial and distortion. And you've heard people say they're, they're bending the truth. They're twisting the truth. Truth cannot be bent or twisted. You can only bend your mind around the truth. And so that's what people do. If the truth is something unpleasant that they don't want to face, they will then warp their mind, but then they have to wear that warp all the time. They have to keep that distorted lens on, lest if they take it off, the truth will get in. So they always wear that warp wherever they go. You've met people like this. You've tried to talk to them. You present some evidence in reality, but it doesn't get through. They don't see it. It's always twisted in a certain way. You've met people like this? It's because they're avoiding something. There's something in their life they don't want to deal with. Another factor that keeps people in a distorted internal software further disconnected from objective reality is having limited facts and limited pieces of the puzzle but believing that you have the whole picture. This happens in marriages where somebody has a single piece of information and then they fill in the gaps. I see it all the time. They use their imagination to fill in the gaps. Well, what did it mean? Well, my husband was short with me today. Well, did you talk to him about it? No, but he must, he must be mad at me. Did you talk to him? Well, he might actually have another reason that he's short and it has nothing to do with being mad at you. You filled in a limited piece of the pie and you filled in the gap. And you created what you think is the whole picture. You don't know the whole picture yet. You haven't talked to him. I see this all the time in relationships. Limited piece of the puzzle and you fill in the gaps and you think you have the whole picture and now you have a warped sense of what's really happening. Your own software is warping reality. And then there's conflicts in relation. I didn't talk to him because I was afraid he'd be mad at me. Based on what? And where this happens theologically happens all the time where people will have a little Bible phrase here and a little L.N.G. White quote there and a little Bible text over here and they take these three or four little data points and they create a theology out of it ignoring multiple other data points that would contradict that view. You see this? Happens all the time. All the time. Um, Another example, deal with people that evolutionary evolutionists and evolutionary theory, they do this all the time. They take the points of data that support their view, and they discount and deny the points of data that don't support their view. Genetic entropy and all the data on genetics. Um, the um, the um, um, radio halos and all the ra- evidence of radio halos. But here's a classic one. One example of how this happens. Geological radio, radio dating and astrometrics uh, provide evidence that the universe and the earth are billions of years old. Some Christians have suggested that God created the earth six to 10,000 years ago. Therefore, they conclude the Bible is wrong. The problem is, though, they don't actually include all the data points. For instance, the data point out of Job, where it says the sons of God sang together for joy when the, earth, the foundations of the earth were laid. Meaning that there were intelligent beings already in existence prior to the creation of earth. From scripture, we've got that background. The Genesis account is not a, an account of the creation of the universe. It's an cr- account of terraforming Planet Earth, a, which at that time was some dark hole, pit, black space in the corner of the Milky Way where Christ came to terraform planet Earth. There's darkness above the face of the deep and so forth and so on. But the universe itself is billions of years old. We have no information from Scripture when the universe was made. 
So God has this ancient matter that he made billions of years ago, and when the time was right, he came to this corner of the universe and terraformed planet Earth. Now, they can't provide any real data on how long organic material had been on Earth. Because the dating systems for that, if, even if you think, the dating system for that would be radiocarbon dating. Radiocarbon dating can only date maximally 50,000 years. That's it. After that, there's not enough to radio date anymore. So you can't date past 50,000 years. And then that is all based on the premise that the amount of radiocarbon in the atmosphere 5,000 years ago is the same concentration as it is today. It's an assumption that's unprovable. But they leave all those pieces of data. When they present it to students in college, they leave all these pieces of data out. There's so many pieces of data left out. So I, I see impressionable young people get this apparent, really cool, uh, scientific, supposed presentation of evolution, but it's all based on innuendo, pieces of data that were contradicted by other pieces of data. So if you get more pieces of the puzzle, you can actually have a better understanding of reality. What are the premises and biases you hold before you go to Scripture? Do you go to Scripture and read the Scripture with an understanding of design law, how the law of love functions in reality, how the law of liberty functions, how the law of worship functions, and all the other laws that God have created his universe to operate upon, or do you go with the filter of, well, God's laws work like man's laws. God just makes up rules and he enforces those rules, and therefore that filter alters how you read and understand everything you see in Scripture. And then other things, filling the mind with false ideas. And the false ideas have major sources. One is media. If you want to see this, just watch closely how the media is handling Ben Carson right now. Yeah. Uh, if you want to get a practice, and I'm not advocating or promoting any political candidate, I'm saying it's an opportunity to watch how the media distorts and twists facts. It's amazing. This, this past two weeks, they have gone on a vendetta, taking little pieces of information and twisting them to say something. I'll just give you one example. You know, if you've read Gifted Hands or known his story, that he uh, disclosed in there that in his early adolescence he struggled with anger problems and that at one point he was tempted to stab a person and didn't. At one point he was tempted to beat his mother with a hammer and he didn't. CNN sent some reporters back, found nine people that he went to school with back at that time. Now, he went to public schools in Detroit. How many students are there in a public school in Detroit? thousands of students and over the courses of, of the years that he was there these are thousands of people he found nine people who said they never saw him act violently and therefore they report out there's nine people from 50 years ago that didn't see him act violently they report that he is he, he is fraudulently claiming his violent past that that he has been proven to lie that he's creating lies and he's a liar now there's only a few people that actually know about that those that were actually there I mean, think about how that would work in a court of law. Somebody is accused of some violent crime. You go into court, we find nine people who weren't there, come in and say, we never saw it. Okay, well, he must not have done it. Plus, how would anybody know if he had violent feelings? Uh, Exactly. But this is the point that they're doing. They're they're taking... This is a fact that those nine people never saw it. That's a fact. But they extrapolate that and twist it to make it out to make him sound like a liar, and they put that in big, bold headlines. Ben Carson has been exposed to CNN to suggest he's lying about his past. And what do people remember? This is, so this is part of where people filled their database. From church, the number one infection I think that church has done to people is, impose, is filled their minds with this imposed law construct. That God's law functionally is no different than what a created being makes, a system of rules that he can then enforce with threats of punishment. God is the creator, the designer, the builder of reality. His laws are the protocols upon which reality functions. It's much different. From family, where do children learn how men treat women and husbands treat wives? What's appropriate to put in one's body and so forth and so on? From school, why do, if, if a political power comes into a nation and they want to change the culture of the nation, what do they go for first? The school books, right? First graders, second graders, why do they want to change those school books? Because you change the, you, you upload that software, then, then they have a philosophy that they tend to see the world through. It's a fight to get out from under that. And you look at the cultures of the world, the history, it's, it's, it's rife with this. And then peers. Peers are other sources of, of warping um, of, our, of our minds. Our challenge is to move ever closer to seeing reality as God designed it to be. And so that's why we develop, and here, as I've told you before, I'm not here to tell any of you what to think. We're all finite beings. We want to develop hearts that are open 
to be lovers of truth. God is infinite, we're finite. It's an eternal journey. Lord, what do I need to correct in my thinking today? What do I not understand accurately today? What do I need to replace with more evidence and more truth-based? And the integrative approach is a real solid way to go. If it's true in scripture, true in science, and true in experience, all three show the same outcome, you can have a lot of confidence in that. Manasseh, as we mentioned earlier, not only did a lot of wicked things, you may have heard it's also reported that he had the prophet Isaiah put in a log and sawn in half. And that's how Isaiah came to his end. Afterwards, you know, he was taken away by the Assyrians and, and, and put into prison, and he repented. And the question I have for you guys, after all this wickedness that he had done, including human sacrifice of his own children, what does it say about God that God put him back on his throne? What does it say? This is a very important story. You should remember it when you deal with people who, are, who have sinned and their sin has come to bear on their life and they're discouraged and distraught and they will say, I have sinned so bad, I, God, God couldn't, couldn't ever accept me. Manasseh is a great story. I don't know anybody that I've dealt with yet that was involved in human sacrifice. Even murder is not human sacrifice of your own son. Your own son. And so Manasseh is a great story. Is God concerned with our deeds? our records, our acts, or is he concerned with our hearts? See, God does not hold grudges or resentment or keep records of wrongs. As 1 Corinthians 13 says, remember God is love, love keeps no record of wrongs. God is always for us, always seeking to save and redeem. No matter how bad you feel, how lost or how wicked, how sinful, Manasseh stands as evidence that if you let God, he will heal you. Yes? Uh, you mentioned Manasseh, and I, Peter also comes to mind. The way that God deals with people that do the wrong thing or go into apostasy and the way that people deal with people who do those things. Um, God tries to restore them, and people, you know, they label them and stick them on the side, and they treat them less than what they were before. Is that like a natural? Yeah. Now, who comes to mind, did you say? Peter. Peter, the apostle? Denied Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's exactly. In our culture today, if you make a mistake, you know, you get cast to the side rather than, okay, that mistake is a symptom of a condition. The question is like doctors, hey, you know what? We, we're treating this patient, and they, their fever spiked during the night. Their, their fever went up. Oh, well, let's kick them off the ward. No. Their fever went up. The, 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 the sins that we engage in, the behaviors, their misdeeds, these are evidences of a condition which is in the process of being remedied. Do we then double down with our interventions of love and truth to try to restore that person and redeem them, or do we kick them out? We only kick the ones out, if you follow, understand scripture, you only kick the people out of the hospital who are non-compliant, who refuse all interventions, or worse, who are actively trying to spread disease to the rest of the, pre- the patients in the hospital. Then you, then you say, nope, you're non-compliant, you're out. But if they're sick and have lots of symptoms, but they're compliant, they're vomiting, have diarrhea, they're making a mess, the ward stinks because they're on it. And, and if any doctors in here that have worked in the ward, you know that happens sometimes. You've got somebody with a GI bleed and the whole ward stinks because of their, of, their, of their diarrhea. But you know what? We don't kick them out, do we? No, we double down and we get more intervention. We get blood. We do all kinds of things to save them as long as they're willing to participate. One horrible thing that sin does to people is it causes them to experience fear, guilt, and shame internal to themselves in their own minds and in their own hearts such that they feel unworthy, condemned, unlovable. This causes them to form beliefs, software, where they begin warping reality that no one could love them, God couldn't accept them, no one would like them if they ever knew what what they'd done. They would be rejected if their sins should ever become public and everyone knew what they they had done. This deep-seated fear is another factor besides the imposed law factor, that leads to so much bad theology. When I was at the GC, when we were at the GC, there was one person walking around the GC handing out his business cards with a web address telling people, learn the truth about Tim Jennings. (laughs) He was telling people that I was teaching heresy, and I had the opportunity to talk with him. And the first thing he asked me, the first words out of his mouth is, do you believe that our sins are being erased from the books of heaven in the investigative judgment? That was his first question to me. <laughs> and I told him that sin does not happen in record books. It happens in people. 
And God wants to erase sinfulness out of the hearts, minds, and character of his people. And the books of heaven are the records of our characters. And as he heals us and erases sinfulness out of our characters and they're transformed, the record books will reflect that. But historical facts do not get changed. Facts of history don't change. David will have always murdered Uriah and stolen Bathsheba, but he got a new heart and right spirit. He said in a derogatory tone, that's what I thought you taught. So I mentioned the evidence of David and I asked him, when we get to heaven, will we know our our own family members? He, He unreservedly says, absolutely. Then I asked, if that's true, will David and Bathsheba know each other and know Solomon? And will Uriah walk up and remember he was married to Bathsheba? Will they know each other? And then how can they explain Solomon if they don't remember how they got together? Hmm. How can they erase the record? And if they erase the record of all that, then do they erase the line of David, which is the progenitor of Christ, and we don't have a Messiah anymore? I also pointed out the Bible says that we sing the song of our experience in heaven. What experience do we have to sing other than the experience of being healed and delivered from sin? If it's being erased from history, what will, of what will we sing? Further, when, Jesus, when the woman anointed Jesus' feet with the expense of oil, Jesus said in defense of her, those who have forgiven much, what? Love much. much. If we don't remember the depths from which God has forgiven and restored us, our love and appreciation for him is undermined. Imagine you were dying of cancer, I mean, or your child was dying of cancer in their last stages, and someone came in and they had a cure, and it was maybe like Jesus, it touched them and it was miraculously cured. And the next day your memory was wiped out and you're healthy, your child's healthy, we have no memory of what happened. Does your appreciation for that healing fade? And that person who did it fade? After I said all this, he said to me, after I gave him all this evidence, which I thought was pretty compelling, he said to me, all I know is that there are sins I've committed in the past that are being erased from the books of heaven and no one will ever know about those sins. That was his quote, as a quote. What did he just reveal? He lives in fear, in guilt, and in shame. He lives under an imperialistic law construct where you're bad if you do bad stuff. And he's afraid that if anyone ever knew the bad things he's done, he couldn't be loved and he couldn't be accepted. This is one of the symptoms of sin itself. This is what sin does. And this is where love is to overrule. This is where love and grace and forgiveness come in. This is why the Bible teaches that we are to confess our sins one to another. Not to every person, because every person can't handle, they're not mature enough in their journey. But we are to confess our sins one to another to, to mature Christians to experience that, hey, we're not here to condemn you. What did Jesus say to the woman caught in adultery? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. We're not here to condemn you. We're here to show you the, the method of living free from all that painful and destructive act- activity. Parents, think about children of yours who maybe did something wicked and they've confessed it to you. Did you reject them? Or did you have great compassion for them and you only wanted to heal them and restore them to righteousness? This is God's attitude. This is God. See him in Eden after they run and hide because they're guilt-ridden and ashamed and they don't, don't think that God could ever love them again. And what is God and how does he approach? See God... As, as he is in Jesus, and now he, he treats the leper and the sinner and the woman caught in adultery. God is always seeking to demonstrate our sin does not cause him to reject us. Our sin causes us to reject him. So crucial. Did you hear that? Yeah, it's critical. And I'm going to tell you, that's not what's taught. What's taught in Christianity is that God is offended by our sin. God is angry at us because of our sin. And something must be done to God so that he will be kind to us. But I'm going to say it again. Our sin does not cause God to reject us. Our sin causes us to reject him. We can't believe God is really that good, that gracious. And and thus we create false theologies designed to diminish diminish God's graciousness by teaching Jesus had to do something to merit the Father's favor. 
how terribly sick and sad. And that's nominal penal substitution Christianity. The first question in the bottom of the pink section says, who doesn't know personally the terrible consequences that can come even from sin that has been forgiven? Does that kind of almost sound strange as a question? Yes. It sounds like a little bit of a strange question. Yeah. Why, why is this question asked? I think this question is asked because we sometimes think that if we get forgiveness, we avoid the problem. There shouldn't be a problem. We've been forgiven. What's, why, why is there a problem? And where does this idea originate? It originates in level one through four thinking. Level one, reward and punishment. If I am forgiven, then I'm not punished. And if I'm not punished, then there's no problem. Level two, marketplace exchange. If I'm forgiven my debt for failing my part of the bargain or the deal, then there's no consequence. I don't have to pay the debt. There's no consequence, then there's no problem. Level three, social conformity. If I'm forgiven, then I'm accepted back into the group. I'm not rejected, thus no consequence. Level four, law and order. If I'm forgiven, I'm legally pardoned, and thus I can't be legally punished. No consequence. And because of this type of thinking, which is rife, the vast majority of Christianity thinks through this lens, one of these lenses. There's this idea that if you're forgiven, no consequence. And that's it's mystery. Why? Why? I asked God to forgive me. Why is all this happening? I get this in my office all the time. Leads, this is what leads the young people to ask the question, well, if God's going to forgive me for having premarital sex, what's wrong with having premarital sex? I'm going to be forgiven. It is only when you come back to realize God's laws are design laws, not imposed rules, and that we can, that you understand reality. We can experience forgiveness from God, but we still have caused a cascade of reality-based consequences and events to be happening. So we see this. David was forgiven and repented, both. But Uriah was still dead, and his actions, David's actions, caused a split in the family, and Absalom tried to overthrow him. That still happened, even though David was forgiven. Samson was forgiven and repented, but he was still blind and a prisoner. Peter was forgiven and repented, but always had the history of his denial to have to deal with in his own mind and heart. A person who commits adultery and contracts HIV is forgiven and may repent and therefore be reconciled to God, receive a new heart and right spirit, and be eternally saved, yet for the rest of their life on earth still have HIV infection to deal with. So what sin is not forgiven? It's a trick question for you guys. What sin is not forgiven? You should ask first, what do you mean by forgiven? Are there sins that God, from his heart, refuses to forgive? No. None. None. And if you want evidence for that, on the cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And Jesus had already established when he healed the paralytic so that you might know that I have authority on earth to forgive sins. Take up your bed and walk. If you see me, you've seen the Father, the Father and I are one. So you're seeing the Father speak right there. The fullness of the God had dwelt in Christ bodily. So here we have God on the cross forgiving his crucifiers. So from God's side, there is no unforgiveness. He forgives everybody. But did the crucifiers accept open their hearts to receive the forgiveness coming from God. Did they do that? Thus, even though they were forgiven from God, they remained in an unforgiven state of being. You see the difference? Their state was unforgiven, not God was unforgiven. And the only reason their state was unforgiving is because they wouldn't accept it. So the only sins that are, remain unforgiven are those that you refuse to accept God's forgiveness for and internalize his grace into your heart to live transformed over. Question in the back. Well, do you think it's a problem that we think of sin as something we do, not necessarily the fact that it's a distrust of God and following his way. We think of it as something we do, not... A frame of mind. No, I think that's well said, yeah. It's all, almost always focused on the behavior rather than the heart condition. Matthew 5, you say if you commit adultery, bad deed. I say if you look at woman with lust in your heart, the behaviors are the symptoms of the heart condition. And thus, those who 
don't open the heart to experience, don't get the new heart, don't get the renewal of motive, don't get transformed. Thus, their condition, state of being, remains out of harmony with God or in an unforgiven state. So yes, that's exactly right. But you're right, we do focus. And then when we focus on the behaviors rather than the heart, then you can create entire theologies of various kinds, Protestant or Catholic, that the problem is the deeds. You gotta, there's a list of deeds, and every deed has to be confessed. If you don't confess the deed in the proper way and get the proper atonement paid and the blood penalty applied or the Eucharist taken or the priest making his proper statement or the proper penance done or whatever else you have to do for that deed, then that deed isn't paid for. And then for the Protestant, of course, they teach. And if you ever stop and think about this, just think about this. Every behavior, every act of sin ever committed by every human being on earth was laid upon Christ on the cross and God punished Jesus for all those bad deeds. That's Protestant penal substitution theology. Did you ever think about that? See, if that were true, then Stalin and Hitler, who together killed 100 million people, shortening their lives, and if you shorten the lives of people, do you shorten, uh, you diminish the number of sins they could commit? Thus, even though there were sins in shortening their lives, at that point in time, for the next 50, 60 years, there's no more sins by those people. So billions and trillions of sins were not committed, but they were really helping reduce the suffering of Christ. Because all the sins couldn't be placed on them. They were never committed. You see, it's, it's, it's just crazy, crazy things. What was placed on Christ was our condition. He who knew no sin became sin for us. The sin-ridden condition so that we might become the righteousness of God. Notice the purpose. He became sin to cure and fix what was wrong in mankind because we could not do it. And, and through him, we are reconciled to God and receive a new heart and right spirit. The law is written on the heart and mind. We are regenerated to be like him. He won a victory over this condition that we could never win. Good question. Monday's lesson, we're just getting into Monday. Uh, before, before I jump and, and bring something else up, is there anything that anyone had in the lesson you wanted to be sure we spoke about today? Um, yes. I like the lesson so far, what you brought up, the importance of our condition and how God accepts us. But my question is about Josiah. Yeah. How, I mean, children assimilate everything around them. Yeah. How did he assimilate the good? I mean, maybe he had a better mother, better priests. Well, that, that's a great question. His father, grandfather's examples were there. Yes, yeah, so this is a wonderful question. And remember how he became king. The advisors assassinated his father Amnon for being so wicked. So the advisors that assassinated him, at least at some aspect of their being, disagreed with and didn't want to go along with what Amnon was doing. So some aspect of them were rising up against this wickedness and saying, no, no more. Interestingly enough, let's, let's jump to, oh, let's see, where, where is it? Um, I'm going to jump down, yes, into uh, Tuesday's lesson, 2 Kings 22, 3 through 7, uh, regarding this. Um, this is, says, in the 18th year of the reign, King Josiah set, sent the court secretary, Shaphan, uh, the son of Isaiah, Azaliah, the son of Azaliah and grandson of Meshulam, to the temple uh, with the order, go to the high priest Hilkiah and get a report on the amount of money that the priest on duty at the entrance of the temple have collected from the people. Tell them to give the money to the men who are in charge of the repairs of the temple. They are to pay the carpenters and the builders and the masons and buy the timber and the stones used in the repair. The men in charge of the work are thoroughly honest, so there is no need to require them to account for the funds. Right there. And then the lesson points out, in Tuesday's lesson, it talks about, um, today we would say that the king sent his ministers of finance to the high priest and asked him to plan to oversee the materials and labor required for the renovation of the temple. They did not have to account for the money with which they were entrusted because they were acting faithfully. And the question along these lines were, how was it possible you could have men so honest in a kingdom that was run by Amnon and Manasseh? How is that possible? The scriptures weren't found until Josiah found them, so they didn't have scriptures to study on their own. How is this possible? Because Romans chapter 1, 
Verse 20, God's divine nature is seen in what he has made so that men are without excuse. The Holy Spirit works on the hearts of anyone who's willing. And when Elijah was facing Ahab and the, and the prophets of Baal, there were 7,000 who still had not bowed the knee. There were still righteous men in the land and the Holy Spirit was still leading people into honesty and loyalty and faithfulness. And evidently those, at least some of those, were influential in Josiah's upbringing to give him a righteous upbringing. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God who is amazing and loving and self-sacrificial and who is designed a universe to operate in harmony with yourself. Our, our minds are warped by our own biases and prejudices and preconceived ideas and assumptions, Lord. We, we come to you today and say we want a heart that loves truth, a heart that is open to be corrected, a heart that is, a heart that is willing to grow, a mind that is willing to think and to reason and examine the evidence. We ask that your spirit of truth and your spirit of love will be poured out to, to lead us into deeper and wiser understandings of how your kingdom works and how we can be effective in promoting your kingdom in this world. We pray in your holy name. Amen.